This episode is brought to you in part by Richmond Graduate University. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly. Richmond Graduate University can equip you to become a licensed professional counselor, integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. Actually, it was the stakes that ultimately helped me make the decision to go to World Vision. I had a moment in my kitchen with my wife where I just broke down as I was wrestling about this decision. And I said to her, I said, if, if there's one child somewhere in the world who suffers or dies because I didn't have the courage to say yes to this job, I don't think I could live with myself. Hey everybody and welcome to The Calling. My name is Richard Clark and I'm an editor at Christianity Today. Today on the podcast I'm talking to Rich Stearns. He's the president of a global Christian humanitarian organization called World Vision, which you've probably heard of. It partners with children, families, communities to help tackle the causes of poverty and injustice. Um, they do a lot of sort of direct, obvious, impossible to not see good work. It's sort of a life and death thing, really high stakes, I think, in pulling that work off well and in the best uh, way possible. And in fact, those stakes were sort of what intrigued me about Rich Stearns and his calling. Um, I, I wanted to know from him, like, why, what, how he copes with the idea that um, based on a decision he makes, people will live longer or not. Basically, lives are at stake based on the decisions that he makes. And um, the answer he gave me was really intriguing, basically, just that it was those stakes that attracted him to the job. One of the things that I loved about that answer is that it got me thinking about the the way that um, stakes, like high stakes can, as opposed to like freezing us up, causing us to sort of panic or uh, get scared. They can actually, if we, if we have a view of calling that really takes for granted that God has put us in a place for a reason, then we know that God wants us there, right? Like if we know that God wants us there, then we know that to not do that, to freeze up, to to hesitate, is actually a way of ignoring those stakes. And if we really believe those stakes, we we lean into the work we do. We lean in sort of hard. We, we like come up with ways we can uh, do our job even better and more actively. So it's a good, really good conversation. I highly recommend it. Before we do that, I want to let you know that um, we this podcast is made possible by Christianity Today magazine. Christianity Today magazine offers redemptive yet honest coverage of the people, events, and ideas shaping the church and culture. As a subscriber, you'll get 10 award-winning print issues and a bunch of other stuff online. We've set up a special page that will allow you to get a discounted subscription plus a bonus download created especially for podcast listeners Go to that deal at orderct.com slash the calling. That's orderct.com slash the calling. Thanks so much. Um, here is my interview with Richard Stearns. He's also the he's the uh, president of World Vision and the author of The Hole in Our Gospel. Here he is, Richard Stearns.
Where do you Where do you live right now? Yeah, I live out in uh, Seattle, Washington. Okay. So how long have you lived there? I moved to Seattle from the Philadelphia area when I accepted the job with World Vision in 1998. So it's been about 19 years now. Okay. And you uh, you have grandkids? I have four grandsons and one grandson on the way. So nice. How how uh, how old are your your kids? So I've got five children. They range from 25 to 38. Uh, three girls, two boys, and uh, three of them are married, and hence the four and a half grandchildren now. Right. Awesome. So, what do you when do they visit a lot or? Well, it's kind of hard because my kids are spread out all over the country, New York, Atlanta, Chicago, Spokane, and Seattle. So mm -hmm. uh, uh, they tried to get as far away from their parents as possible, most of them. <laughs> so holidays must be weird. Like, is it pretty chaotic? Well, it can be. We, we try to alternate with the in-laws. Uh, on one year, we try to get everybody to Seattle. And on the other year, they go to their in-laws uh, for Christmas, you uh -huh. know. And uh, it's harder and harder to get the whole family together now, though. Right. So um, we always start the podcasts with with this question. How would you define your calling? Yeah, you know, I've done a lot of thinking about calling in the last uh, number of years. And uh, my belief about calling is that it's the result of a, a long obedience in the same direction. And I think for me, uh, as my calling has been revealed to me over many, many years, it is a calling to, uh, uh, to serve the poor, uh, the poorest people in the world. And, and a calling to missions, you know, uh, to the Great Commission. And so uh, I think I finally discovered the culmination of that when I uh, was called to World Vision in 1998. But I really believe God had been preparing me for many, many years before that uh, to eventually assume that role uh, at World Vision. Yeah, because you, you did a lot of other things before World Vision that's pretty, like it feels like a, the buildup to that feels like hard to discern from the outside, right? Because you were like, I guess, CEO or president of, of several companies or a few companies that really didn't have much to do with charitable things, right? That's right. And, you know, when I speak to younger people, uh, sometimes I speak about calling and I speak about career. And mm -hmm. usually 22-year-olds that are graduating from college are all uptight about what they're going to do yeah. and where they're going to work. And uh, I tell them that, you know, relax, a career is a long time and God is still writing your story. Uh -huh. And I tell them my story because I have a degree in neurobiology. Huh. Uh, I, I have an MBA in marketing. Uh -huh. And then I went to Gillette and sold shaving cream and deodorant for wow. a couple yeah. of years. Then a toy company, uh -huh. Parker Brothers Games, where I spent nine years and became CEO. And that's uh, Monopoly Games and Nerf Balls, right? Uh -huh. And uh, <laughs> and then uh, Lennox China and Crystal, the tableware company, luxury goods uh, sold to the wealthy. And I was at Lennox for uh, uh, 11 years yeah. and became CEO there. And then World Vision. So you, you can't imagine a more unlikely career or a more unlikely on one level yeah. person to lead World Vision. It's like... That's a fascinating like trio of companies because you've got like the recreational sort of like what some would call like time wasting activities. And then you've got like the luxury wealthy person thing and you've got the world vision charity thing. Those feel really almost opposed to each other in some ways. Yeah. Did it feel that way to you? Well, yes and no. Um, but as I said, you know, a calling is a long obedience in the same direction. Yeah. And um, and I believe God really 
lays down tracks in our lives that lead us in a certain direction if we're willing to follow. And mm -hmm. just for example, I was born in a very unstable family. Mm -hmm. uh, my father had three marriages, three divorces. Wow. My parents never went to high school. Uh, when I was 10, they divorced and um, the bank foreclosed. I have one sister. Okay. So at that time, the bank foreclosed on our home and we were evicted. And uh, so, you know, I saw education as maybe my way out of that family situation. Right. Uh, so instability gave me the ability to relate to children around the world who are poor. Right mm. now, refugee children yeah. are unstable. They, yeah. You know, the children need stability, you know. Yeah. So I, I, I think that gave me a heart for children that were in difficult circumstances. Mm. When I met my wife on our first date, uh, she said that she felt called by God to help the poor. Mm -hmm. And so I think God gave me the right spouse, you know, to uh, lead me in that direction. Yeah. Um, in my first church experience, we just had a real passion for missions. And the missions conference was the highlight of the year. And my wife and I got very involved with that. So if I look back on my life and then my corporate career was a lot about uh, marketing a product to the public, consumer packaged goods, consumer product marketing. And what did World Vision need when they needed a, a president in the United States? They needed someone who knew how to market a cause to yeah. the public to make a case for uh, our child sponsorship and, and uh, you know, other programs that World Vision raises money for. So I needed a knowledge of marketing. Uh, I needed a spouse that was willing to... Uh, allow her husband to quit his job, take a 75% pay cut and move his five children across the country. Um, um, you know, I needed a heart for missions and a heart for the poor. And when I look back on my life, all of that was there, you know, it was all there. Uh, I didn't know where it was leading at the time, but it all came together at world vision. When was the moment that you felt like you it sort of solidified what your calling was? Well, it was probably, it was probably in that period where I was trying to make the decision about world vision. Okay. Uh, that was a real crossroads in my life. I was wrestling with God. I didn't want to leave my corporate career after growing up poor. I had lived the American dream. Um, I was making a really nice income and, uh, I had five little kids that had to go through college and we had just bought our dream house, uh, you know, a 200 year old farmhouse on five acres. So World Vision was very inconvenient uh, for me. And um, so it was in that wrestling with God of, you know, who will you serve? Uh, you know, who will you choose? What will you choose? Um, and ultimately, through that process, uh, I came to believe that God was indeed calling me. And uh, uh, at the time, there were, you know, a lot of what I'd call signs that were hard to explain in any other way, but it was God's hand leading me in that direction. What kind of signs? Well, uh, it started with uh, a friend of mine who worked at World Vision at the time, called me a year before and said uh, in his prayer time, uh, he'd been praying for World Vision, and uh, he literally said to me, the Holy Spirit has told me that you're going to be the next president of World Vision. <laughs> wow. It was kind of a prophecy. And, uh -huh. I, you know, and I laughed at him and I said, yeah, right. Well, uh -huh. the Holy Spirit has not told me uh, that. And what was your category for that at the time? Like, I know people have different viewpoints on that whole thing. Like, what, what was your... Were you like, I don't believe in that? Or were you like, I guess that could be the case? I, I think, to be honest, I don't think I believed in calling at that time the way I now do. Um, huh. 
you know, I thought calling was whatever you're doing. If you're a Christian, whatever you're doing must be your calling, mm-hmm. you know, and uh, there's no such thing as maybe a special calling. Um, uh, so I, I don't know. I was confused about calling and, and I wasn't looking for, you know, this change. Um, but it started with that prophecy. And of course, I said to my friend Bill, I said, you know, I've never been to Africa. I have no theological background. I've mm. never done any fundraising. Mm. I'm not available or interested. How, <laughs> how am I? Yeah. How am I going to be the president of World Vision? Uh, and but then, you know, months went by. And um, um, one day I went through my inbox back when we had inboxes uh, at Lenox, China. And one of my vice presidents had clipped out an ad from the Wall Street Journal, and it basically said, World Vision Seeking President. He clipped it out, taped it on a page, and said, when I read this want ad, I thought of you. This is you. And uh, he had no idea that I had any connection with World Vision. We were donors to World Vision. And, uh, and there were just things like that, you know, that happened repeatedly that uh, was the the still small voice of God saying, you know, you need to look at this. And, you know, and I did feel I was being called in that direction. You said that, that you did, you told your friend, like you didn't, you went down this checklist of things that you'd think a person that was right for that job would be, which is a lot of experience in those things in theology, knowledge of theology, experience in charity, um, interest. Like you didn't have any of those things. So what was it about you that made your other friends say, I thought of you. Well, I think uh, I'd always had an interest in the poor. I'd been a donor to World Vision since the 1980s. Um, um, You know, we were very involved in our church and our church missions conference. So there were the the, the signs were there. I didn't quite recognize them. You know, when uh, ultimately an executive recruiter called me who represented World Vision and uh, and I kind of told him the same thing. I'm not interested. I'm not qualified. I literally said to him, his name was Rob. And I said, Rob, um, this job, you're looking for somebody that's part CEO, part Mother Teresa, and part Indiana Jones. <laughs> and I said, I don't think that's me. And I don't know who you're going to find to fill that job because it's hard to find two out of those three in a CEO. And, and I told him, I, I said, I'm running a luxury goods company. I've never been to Africa. I know nothing about poverty. I have no theological background. And, uh, and, and he said to me on that phone call, he said, Rich, I've made 200 phone calls networking about this job. And he said, right now, the Holy Spirit is telling me that I need to meet you. Hmm. I have never felt this so strongly. And I've learned to listen to this prompting from God when mm-hmm. it happens. It doesn't happen very often. But he said, we need to meet. And yeah. I said, I don't think we do. You know, I don't think we do need to meet. It'll waste your time. I was kind of I, I knew it was a, a dangerous phone call because right. we were now almost a year later from the first phone call. And I knew something was going on and I was resisting it. Huh? Yeah. But then he asked me this question. He said, Rich, are you willing to be open to God's will for your life? And that question kind of stopped me in my tracks. And I cautiously answer answer yes i do want to be open to god's will for my life but i'm pretty sure this is not it and he said have dinner with me and let's find out and so on that basis i i agreed to have dinner with him and um we had a long long conversation he convinced me to throw my hat in the ring and i did so really believing that they would never select me 
Um, you know, in the Monopoly game, there's a community chess card that says you've won second prize in a beauty contest, collect $10. <laughs> I was hoping to win second prize in the beauty contest. I couldn't imagine a board of directors selecting the president of Lenox, China to run World Vision. So I actually felt somewhat safe that I could I could be bold and say, all right, Lord, I'm I'm being obedient. See, I threw my hat in the ring, uh, but believing I would never get selected. And so when they did pick me, it was kind of a shock. Could you feel yourself like you, you talk about long obedience? Could you feel yourself sort of working that out? beforehand like in your previous jobs i'm because i'm curious how you might have applied the principles you talk about now to your job at parker brothers or your job at um was it lennox mm -hmm. at lennox um yeah how did how did you work those out well you know when i talk about long obedience in the same direction um you know i think god uses people who are willing and who are submitted to his will. And so it's a thousand little decisions. Uh, uh, you know, as Christians, we're called to be disciples, and we're called to immerse ourselves in Scripture, in Christian fellowship, in our churches. We're called to tithe our incomes. We're called to care for the poor. We're, um, you know, these are the things uh, of obedience that even a new Christian is called in these directions. And uh, I think God gives every one of us those little opportunities for obedience and submission. And if we are faithful in a series of smaller decisions, um, um, you know, that's when he reveals maybe the ultimate calling he has on your life because you've been faithful in a few things and now he gives you more responsibility. And so in, in my case, my faith, uh, I was an atheist when I was in my early 20s and actually became a Christian at the, the Wharton School of Business, of all things. But when I made that commitment that day in my dorm room, I said, Lord, I want to commit my life to you and live my life for you. I will do anything, go anywhere. I want to be your follower, you know, and I never forgot that promise. And, and that meant uh, everything. It meant, you know, being faithful in my marriage. It meant raising my kids according to Christian principles. It meant tithing my income. It meant going to church every single Sunday with five squalling kids. Um, it meant volunteering to help with the missions conference. Um, at work, it meant uh, being openly Christian and letting people know. Uh, I had a Bible on my desk and had some opportunities to, you know, to witness to people because they, they'd notice the Bible and they'd say, you know, why have you got that on your desk? And, um, and so when that gentleman sent me the want ad and said, this sounds like you, it was probably because of what he'd observed, you mm, know, he yeah. probably heard me talk about why it's important to help the poor. And, uh, he'd probably heard me talk about my church and how my wife and I were involved yeah. with things like that. Um, so we tried to be faithful with a little, and, uh, and I believe God then offered me a bigger opportunity mm -hmm. to, uh, to serve, yeah. and, um, and that's how it you know, came about. It's interesting that you refer to it as a bigger opportunity to serve because a lot of people wouldn't think of it that way when you're getting like a pay cut. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. It's not exactly like a, the most prestigious or like quote-unquote successful opportunity yeah. but like what what makes you think it's it's bigger 
Well, you know, sometimes, you know, serving the Lord involves downward mobility, right? Uh-huh. And um, the willing to the willingness to humble oneself and submit to God's will, even when it doesn't seem to be in your best interests. And uh, uh, World Vision is actually bigger than Lennox um, in revenue and employees. Mm, yeah. And um, so in that sense, you know, it was a bigger responsibility. Um, but it was, it's so much more important than Lennox, you know, to the world and to the, the people's world. And, uh, you know, at World Vision, I get the real privilege of being involved with uh, saving hundreds of thousands of lives every year and representing the gospel in 100 countries around the world. And so it feels like uh, a really big, wonderful uh, responsibility to to have been allowed to do that and to be part of that um, in my Christian faith. You know, I often look at the story of Moses, and this goes to the, the preparation piece. So for the first 40 years of Moses' life, he grew up in the household of the Pharaoh, and he learned about Egyptian power politics, mm-hmm. and he learned leadership. Well, then the next 40 years of his life, he's banished into the wilderness, right? Hmm. The Judean wilderness or the, uh, on the Sinai Peninsula, I think. And he's a shepherd, um, literally tending his sheep. And then when he's 80, God calls him. And it's almost like God says, now you're ready <laughs> yeah. because I need you to go to Pharaoh, power politics in Egypt, confront him to let my people go. And then I need you to lead these people through the wilderness for 40 years like sheep, like a shepherd. And so if you look back at Moses' life, it was the perfect preparation for what God had in store. But here's the other thing about those calling opportunities. You have to say yes. Mm -hmm. Um, Moses was very reluctant to do the job God called him to do. Yeah. Understandably, he was 80 years old. He thought it was game over for him. He was just going to, you know, die in his old age. And, uh, and yet God called him at age 80. And that conversation between God and Moses is fascinating because Moses ultimately send, says, send someone else to do it. Hmm. And when I was wrestling with the world vision thing, I was saying to God, mm-hmm. Lord, don't make me do this. Uh, send someone else to do it. Yeah. Um, I'm not the right person. I'm not qualified. That's what Moses was saying. Um, but here's the thing about calling. You you can turn it down. Um, uh, and if you turn down something that is a clear call from God, you do it at your own peril because you uh, God will raise up someone else to do the thing that you turn down. Uh, remember when Mordecai is talking to Esther, he says to her, if you fail to speak up, on behalf of the Jews for such a time as this, God will raise up a deliverer from another place. In other words, this is your opportunity, Esther, to speak up. And if you fail to do so, if you fail to step into that role where God has positioned you, uh, God's will will not be thwarted. He'll find another way to accomplish his purposes. You just won't have the privilege of being part of it. And I think many of us, and I came very close to missing this special calling on my life because uh it was a 50 50 proposition whether i was going to say yes or not you know it was just a a really hard decision i remember my wife saying if god is calling us here we will go and she said the only safe place for us is following god's will for our lives and we just have to determine if this is god's will for our life we must go because i don't want to be outside of god's will that was her attitude In our broken world, it can be hard to see how Jesus is at work making all things new. That's why every day, 
CT testifies to the reality that Jesus is alive, transforming his world and bringing his kingdom to bear through redemptive storytelling and global reporting. Whether it's a pastor in Brazil who uses CT in Portuguese to lead his ministry, or a young believer who wants to think biblically about our culture, CT comes alongside believers to illuminate what it looks like to follow Jesus in today's world. Jesus is transforming his world. CT is equipping his church. Give a gift of $20 to provide 150 more people with redemptive storytelling, global perspective, and thoughtful podcasts. Give now at morect.com equip. With Moses and with a, a lot of <clears throat> a lot of biblical leader figures who are called to do things like you you see a moment in their in after they accept the calling where they start to doubt that calling they doubt their place in God's plan or that they've made the right decision or they they kind of want to take back what they've done was is there is there a moment where you felt that where you sort of doubted what you what you decided to do well absolutely and I think in the days and weeks after the decision there was this sick feeling as you know my whole world started to dissolve underneath me we had to put our house on the market i had to quit my job i couldn't believe i was quitting a job i'd worked 25 years to get wow yeah we had to tell our kids we were moving we had to tell all of our friends we were moving um we were trying to figure out how we were going to live on the lower salary um and then when i started at world vision you know I was just overwhelmed with the responsibility. You know, they were saying, well, there's a famine developing in Sudan. There's a, you know, <laughs> hunger in North Korea. Yeah. You know, Hurricane Mitch hit that year and devastated Latin America. Wow. And everyone's turning to me. What should we do? What's your vision? What's your strategy? And I'm like, I don't know. You know, I, I mean, I, I just got here. You know, mm -hmm. I don't know anything about this stuff. And so I, I felt like I was drinking from a fire hose. But over time, you know, I realized that I was actually a very good fit for this position and I started to gain some traction and find my, my footing. And, um, and I kind of, uh, had to become the leader that world vision needed. I wasn't that leader on day one. I yeah. was pretty rough around the edges. Um, so I had to lean into that and, and really find my voice. And, um, actually, you know, the other thing, which is encouraging to people that are, are trying to seek their calling is, uh, in my role at world vision, God developed in me skills and abilities that I didn't, I didn't think I ever even had, you know, there's this old saying, God doesn't call those who are equipped. He equips those who are called. And uh, I found that to be true because there were a lot of things I was lacking uh, when I started this job. Uh, but it was almost as if God were saying, I got this, you know, you were obedient. I'm going to work with this and uh, watch and see what I'm able to do um, with your obedience. And, and obedience is a critical word uh, for any Christian and, and anyone seeking to find God's will for their lives, if you're not willing to obey and submit, uh, God can't work with that. You know, um, I, I get called by people who read my story and they say, well, I want to do something like you did rich. And, and I'll say, well, tell me about your situation. And it ends up something like this. Well, I, I've had this corporate career and I've done this and that, and, uh, really want to serve the Lord. Uh, but I have some conditions, you know, like we, we really can't live Darien, Connecticut. We can't leave Darien, Connecticut because 
we just got into the country club after a seven-year wait list <laughs> and our kids are at this great private school and of course our elderly parents are half an hour away so uh, within those constraints um, I really want to be available to God's will and uh, and I often say to them God's not interested in your conditions he wants your unconditional surrender. Lord, I'll go anywhere, anytime to do what you call me to do, no conditions. Now, he may leave you right in Darien, Connecticut. He may choose to do that, um, but he may call you somewhere else. You may have to move to Dallas. You may have to move overseas. And God does not want our list of conditions. I will serve you if you meet the following conditions. You know, I need a certain salary. I need this or that. So, it's, it's kind of a hard truth. Uh, um, you know, when Peter and uh, his brother Andrew were called, it says, you know, they were tending their nets, uh, fishermen. And it says immediately they left their nets. Immediately they left their nets and they followed Jesus. There was no, well, Lord, you know, we just bought a second fishing boat. We've got a big loan from the bank. We've got an extra stall in the marketplace. The business is just about to take off. Not right now, Lord. It's inconvenient. You know, it's, no, immediately they left their nets. Yeah. Well, uh, I'm interested in the stakes part of it because you talked about, you know, the, being overwhelmed when you first took the job and like all of these disasters are happening and you're having to respond in various ways. Uh, I feel like working for me, I work for Christianity Today, which is like an institution that I respected when I took the job. And um, the weight of that that institution like weighs on me i can't imagine joining an organization that was literally like people's lives are at stake you know what i mean how did you deal with like the the those stakes like the fact that if you made the wrong decision or whatever maybe you never thought about it and i'm ruining your day but like i think you've probably thought about this like if you make the wrong decision more people will like not live as long um how do you deal with that yeah very important question. And actually, it was the stakes that ultimately helped me make the decision to go to World Vision. I had a moment in my kitchen with my wife where I just broke down as I was wrestling about this decision. And I said to her, I said, if, if there's one child somewhere in the world who suffers or dies because I didn't have the courage to say yes to this job, I don't think I could live with myself, you know. And I imagine this one child and um, and basically out of that idea, I finally told World Vision that I would do it because I I never want I didn't want to live with the doubt that my failure to obey had consequences that were beyond my own life. Right. They get consequences for children and families and the poor. And what's interesting is uh this idea of this one child was so vivid. Uh, I think it was from the Lord. And on my very first trip to Africa, and the very first boy I met, and you'll appreciate that because your name is Richard and my name is Richard. The very first boy I met was an AIDS orphan who was raising his two brothers. He was 13 years old and his name was Richard. And he was raising his two brothers without parents in the middle of the AIDS pandemic in Uganda. And it was almost like God was saying, this is that one child. His name is Richard, just like yours, uh, just so I wouldn't miss it. And uh, in now 19 years, I've never met another child in a World Vision program named Richard. That was the only one I've ever met. So the stakes were important. And um, I, uh, 
the way I deal with it kind of year to year, day to day, um, is, you know, you try to be faithful, you try to give everything you have and give your best. Uh, but you trust God, you know, God loves the world's children more than I do or you do. Um, and you trust him for the outcomes. And I always tell people you have to live. You've heard the expression, the glass is half full or the glass is half empty. How do you look at it? If you do this kind of work where you're meeting desperate needs of people, if you live in the half empty part of the glass where there's always another child you can't reach, there's always another disaster you can't respond to, um, you can't save everyone, um, you won't last very long in the humanitarian relief and development work. But if you live in the half full part of the glass and you realize and you celebrate that we help that one and we help that one, and we changed this community and we changed that community and these people accepted Christ and uh, you can live in the joy of that and you yeah. can just say, thank you, Lord, for letting me be part of that. Yeah. No, that's actually really helpful to me because I feel like I often I have a tendency to see potential, which is another way of saying what's not there. You know what I mean? Like I um, and a lot of times I'll obsess over that, like what's what's missing that I that I wish wasn't from what I'm doing or whatever. Um, so I, I struggle sometimes to see the, the what's full, you know, what is yeah. there, um, which I think in that position, it would like drive me a little insane. Like it would make me go crazy, which yeah. is interesting. What do you think is like, what is the thing that you do struggle with? Like in this, in this calling, like what's the thing that, that is a struggle for you? Well, I think, you know, I am always in the position of exhorting Christians to care and to give and to be sacrificial mm -hmm. in serving the poor. Yeah. And, you know, if you don't watch out, you can get very judgmental when you do this kind of work uh -huh. because you, you start to feel, well, nobody cares about the poor more than I do. Right. You know? right. And, yeah. uh, you know, yeah. why don't people live, breathe, eat, sleep and drink uh, sacrificial giving and care for the poor? Um, like I feel like I do and my team does and, you know, mm -hmm. so many that work for World Vision do. And, you know, somebody gives you $10,000 gift and you think they could have afforded 20000 you know, and because <laughs> right. uh, I know they've got a second home and they've got a Jaguar and they've got. And uh, my wife always reminds me, do not get judgmental because we're all dealing with the same thing on a different level. You know, for mm -hmm. me, it might be why do I need this many pairs of shoes or, you know, why do my wife and I need two cars instead of one? And, you know, for somebody else, it might be, well, I'm going to get a third home yeah. and uh, I'm going to buy a jet. And I, so we're all struggling with how much is enough and how much should we give? Yeah. But we're all doing it on different levels, you know, different yeah. levels, but uh, none of us uh, have a, a pure heart, a perfectly pure heart about our possessions and our money. So, you can get to having a pity party that nobody nobody cares as much as I do. Mm -hmm. and, um, and you have to watch that because uh, um, you've got to just take people at face level. If someone gives you a $10,000 gift or a $10 gift for that matter, you just need to say, thank you, Lord, for this person yeah. who gave us these resources at this time. And they have to work out their salvation with fear and trembling before God, just like I do, you know, yeah. so I'm not their judge and I'm not their, um, uh, their moralizer, you know, so, um, but it's, but it is, it, it is a frustration 
to try to provoke the church and Christians to care about certain issues. And today it's the refugee crisis, you know, the biggest humanitarian crisis on the planet. And by and large, uh, there are many exceptions, but by and large, the American church has not only been disengaged, they've been relatively hostile toward, well, at least apathetic and, and to some extent hostile toward helping refugees who are largely Muslims. And so I find myself in that prophetic role. You know, the prophets were cranky old men that just kept provoking the nation of Israel to do what they felt God was calling them to do, to be what they felt God was calling them to be. So, you know, we do fight these uphill battles quite a bit. Uh, we live in an affluent country with an affluent church, by and large. And, uh, you know, we're always outside the wall saying, yes, but look at the suffering here and look at the opportunity here. And, uh, you know, so that tension uh, is constant. Right. You know, trying to invite people into the work and and uh, and sometimes Christians not responding in ways where you think they should respond. But yeah. And you have to often like a lot of your work is is about saying the things you're talking about, like saying out loud, you guys need to do this or whatever. Like, how do you do that without falling into like, how do you do that without falling into um, feeling like you're better in some way? And, and have you found like ways to persuade people that, that are, I don't know, more effective than others? Well, I think uh, a lot of it is about persuading people. And, you know, I probably preached in a dozen churches over the last couple of years about the refugee crisis. And I know going in that the temperature of the congregation on this issue is somewhere between lukewarm to cold in general, uh, partially because of the, the fear uh, that is out there. It's real fear of, you know, terrorism and acts of terror, the uh, antipathy or animosity even toward Muslims in general, and, and the complexity of what's happening in the Middle East. So you walk into a situation, and, but uh, what I always do is first humanize the issue. Um, if you look at the refugee crisis as some kind of issue to be dealt with, it's very easy for you to be cold or apathetic toward it um, or even hostile. But when I tell you the story of a 10-year-old girl who watched her father killed, when I tell you the story of a, a woman with five little girls who hasn't seen her husband in three years and they live in a 10-foot by 10-foot tent, when I tell you the story of a grandmother that lost her son and daughter-in-law and now has to raise the three grandchildren, you start to see them as human beings. And, and you, you know, our founder said, let your heart be broken by the things that break the heart of God. And your heart starts to break for the human stories of these people, Muslim or not. And then I, I go to scripture and I pull out the, the powerful messages from scripture about how we're to love our neighbors and care for people in need and care for the widow and the orphan in their distress. And, uh, see that justice is done. And, uh, and I talk about how Jesus always reached out to the people that the Pharisees felt were untouchable. You know, the Samaritan woman, the woman with the issue of blood, the leper, um, having dinner with tax collectors. And, and these were untouchable people for the Jews in the first century. And Jesus broke all the rules because he basically said, I love these people. Um, and you need to love these people. So 
you know, I get about 25 minutes to change the temperature of the water when I preach at a church. Uh, but most, uh, most Christians are good-hearted people, and, and when they hear the real facts and when they actually understand the real human drama and dimension of an issue like refugees, they, they do respond and they do the right thing. Um, it's just having the opportunity to, to speak to people is, is a privilege, but yeah. So what would you say is like the, your deepest fear in terms of like the way you live out your calling? Well, I wouldn't say I, I have a lot of fear. You know, we talked a few minutes ago about the, the weight of responsibility of what's at stake. And I learned a long time ago that I can't put myself in the position of believing that somehow this all depends on me. You know, I, I couldn't carry that burden. And I don't think God wants us uh, to believe it all depends on us because it doesn't, you know. And so I look at my job as, uh, Lord, I'll just try to be faithful. I'll try to put one foot in front of the other. I'll try to do the things that uh, you called me to do with my limited skill set. And I'm going to trust you for the outcome because, again, you care more about these uh, children than, than I could ever care. Um, you know, God is not asking us to be perfect. He's asking us uh, to be faithful. And you've heard Mother Teresa's famous quote when uh, some young reporter, maybe like yourself, asked Mother Teresa, uh, Mother Teresa, with all due respect, you know, you've worked in Calcutta your entire life, and arguably there's more and worse poverty here today than there was when you started. You know, what do you say to that? And she said, young man, my God did not call me to be successful. He called me to be obedient. And, um, and I feel that way, you know, that, uh, Lord, my job is to be as obedient as I can possibly be. And I have to trust you for the outcome. Even when I don't understand the outcome, I have to trust you for the outcome. So I think that's, um, that's the way I try to think of it. And I encourage my team to think of it that way as well. Um, and it's very liberating because you, you don't have to be responsible for the welfare of a hundred million people. You know, you, you, you can say God is in control and his will be done. Our job is to be faithful. If you could, uh, step into a time machine, go back in time and talk to yourself, what would you say? Well, if I could talk to myself uh, on the cusp of the decision to come to World Vision when I was wrestling with God, I think I would say relax and trust and have faith because I know the plans God has for you. You know, I know the plans that God has for you and their plans to prosper you and not to harm you. In other words, be strong, be courageous, say yes to this opportunity because, uh, God's got you in his arms and he will compensate for your weaknesses. He will bring you to a, a better pasture. And, and I look back on the fact that I came very close to turning this job down and I would have missed the great calling of my life. Um, and I would have missed it. And there's a really interesting story. 10 years after I took the job at world vision, I returned to Lenox, China, uh, I happened to be in the area and I called up an old buddy that still worked there and I said, hey, could I come in and say hello to some of the old timers? And so I came in 
And there were about eight or 10 people we gathered in a conference room to, to just talk. I hadn't seen them in 10 years, I, I literally. And I said, tell me what's going on here. Uh, how are you guys doing? And they told me this terrible tale of sadness. They said, well, we've closed five of our six factories. We've downsized multiple times. We've laid off 3,000 people. We got acquired by another company. Um, we've had five CEOs since you left, Rich. It's been traumatic. It's been disastrous. And I and they said, well, enough of that. You know, tell us, tell us what you've been doing for the last 10 years. And I lit up and I said, oh, what a privilege to travel the world, to help children. I wake up every morning and I know that what I do that day will make a difference in the lives of children. I've got a board of directors that prays for me. Um, you know, it's just a real privilege to have this job. And, uh, and one of the guys at the end of the table who was Jewish said, that sounds like heaven. And he said, do you have any job openings at World Vision that I could apply for? And uh, as if to put a point, an exclamation point on this experience, because God was showing me the future that I wanted at the time versus the future he had given me. And he was kind of saying, you see, Rich, do you see what might have happened to you if you'd stayed? I, I knew best. I, I knew this was for your best. And as if to put an exclamation point on it, two weeks later, I got a letter in the mail from Lennox. I thought it was maybe from one of my buddies that I connected with that day. And it was just an announcement that they had declared bankruptcy and that my pension, my executive pension was canceled. Wow. And, uh, <laughs> and, and, and it was the Lord saying, uh, just in case you didn't get the message, um, you have to trust me because your pension from Lennox is gone now. Yeah. So do you trust me, Rich? Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. And I, I felt like, uh, you know, that scene in the Christmas Carol where Scrooge gets to see his possible future. Uh-huh. Uh, uh, and, uh, and of course, the angel says that you can change that future. The ghost uh, says you can change that future. Yeah. And uh, so I, I felt like I got a glimpse of what my future might have been had I not obeyed. Right. And not submitted to God's will. So wow. that was really a, just great to have that punctuation mark yeah. after my first 10 years. You've been listening to The Calling. Richard Stearns is the president of World Vision and the author of The Hole in Our Gospel. You can follow him on Twitter at Rich Stearns. That's at Rich Stearns. Remember to rate and review the show on iTunes. It helps us a lot. The Calling is produced by Jonathan Clausen and Morgan Lee. Theme music by Lee Rosevere. Use under Creative Commons 4.0. This episode was brought to you in part by the audio adventure series, Discovery Mountain. Help your kids fall in love with the Bible. Each true-to-life adventure story will draw them closer to Jesus. Visit discoverymountain.com slash ct.